Hey, and welcome to episode 22 of 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and this week I'm joined by Danielle Strockman, co-founder of 1517, a fund that invests in young entrepreneurs. Danielle's previous experience working at the Teal Fellowship and founding a charter school creates the perfect foundation for working with young founders. Her focus on project-based learning aims to reiterate that there is no one-size-fits-all path for people. Danielle's own introspection and experience founding 1517 is a unique story and one that I can't wait to share with all of you. Thank you so much for being on my show today. I'm so excited to have you. Hey, Christina. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So start by telling us about 1517. So 1517 is a venture capital fund that specializes in working with younger founders who are in high school, college, and who are college dropouts. Uh, My colleague, Michael Gibson, and I started the fund two years ago as a way to extend upon our work, working with younger makers and founders through the Teal Fellowship. Uh, and right now we work with 33 portfolio companies. We also give grants out to young people to help them get started on things. Uh, and we mentor a lot of people across the globe. Awesome. So why the interest in younger founders? So a couple different reasons. One is that we think that younger people are largely overlooked. Um, there's sort of a sense of, Hey, you can go out into the real world once you're finished with all of your schooling, uh, before starting something. Uh, we think that is sort of an infantilization of that people can take opportunities now. And I think the, the higher ed landscape has changed a lot. Um, when I was going to school, this is actually back in 98 through 2002, I don't think four years seemed as long as it is now. Um, <laughs> now, when you have access to resources, you know, such as a laptop or, um, you know, being able to set up servers and things like that, you can just get started on something so much faster. And so when someone then says to you, hey, you need to wait four years to start that project you really want to do, but you know you can bang out a prototype in a weekend and then maybe be running a company the week after that, uh, or at least getting started on it, that opportunity cost is really high. Um, mm-hmm. So if we like to say, like, if someone has something that, you know, they have a burning desire to do now and they think, you know, that there's a market need or if it's a nonprofit, if they have people that they think they can serve, you know, that you can go ahead and try it now and start and see what happens. Uh, You don't have to wait until you finish school. I've been in alternative education for a very long time. I used to have a tutoring business where I worked with homeschoolers. I also started a charter school that worked with K through eight students. So working with young people has been a big passion of mine since I entered the working world uh, at the age of 22. And so the fund is very much a continuation of sort of that philosophy of learning by doing uh, you know, in, instead of sitting in the classroom and, and n- you know, necessarily going over case studies and, and learning business skills, which is fine, but having something applicable to apply that to uh, and, and having an opportunity. And, and I guess the last point is just that we think that one path is not for all. Um, so college is great for some people and for some people it's an opportunity cost. Uh, and you need to think about the pros and cons before, you know, saying that yes, instead of just assuming that, oh, the next step is that I go to college. Um, the landscape has changed quite a bit over the past seven years since we started at the Teal Foundation. We're really happy to see people having a really reasonable discussion about school. And our message is just that we want people to consciously think about it. So if school is the right option for somebody, then that's fantastic, uh, as long as they're making a really concerted effort 
to really think about what they want to do instead of following a herd. Mm -hmm. So more so just being introspective and thoughtful about your future choices. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. Um, it's funny because I, when I interviewed James, James was a Peter Thiel fellow and knows Danielle and her co-founder, Michael, pretty well. And he talked to me, you know, he didn't go to college and he, but he also is someone that is such a mature person. He even says it's not for everyone. Yep. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for everyone. I think it's a very personal choice. Yeah, I totally agree. I wouldn't recommend it for any, like for everybody either. I think that's the whole point is not recommending one particular thing and that you know, we as humans, we're dynamic creatures and uh, and different things are going to be right for us. I mean, I, I have a four-year degree. Going to college was the right thing for me. However, actually, when I stepped off of the academic track, I was on my way to getting a graduate degree. And I really decided that I wanted to do something, um, you know, straight out of undergrad to get started in the working world and, and have some of the impact that I wanted to have. And that's why I started my, my tutoring company uh, instead of going you know, for more schooling and, and more education mm -hmm. uh, along the way. But when I was 18, I didn't have a sense of, oh, hey, I could do this or that. I, I didn't have a particular drive in a, a certain field that only happened later for me. So um, so that worked out. Yeah. I mean, in addition, college debt is something that people need to think about. I was very fortunate and that, you know, I paid off loans for almost a decade of $88 a month, um, which is very low compared to what many, many people are paying off. Mm -hmm. I had about 10K in debt. So I also had some flexibility after I was done with school to say, hey, I want to start a business now, where not everybody has that luxury anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, I wish I had my shit together when I was 18. I, I want to see yeah. more programs maybe dealing with high school students to so that when they are 18 or 17 thinking about college, they actually, you know, have their skills necessarily necessary or the information required to know these options are available to them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, agreed. And and we're seeing more programs coming about uh, and more of that conversation starting. I mean, I, I have uh, I have a number of friends who have teenagers, you know, who are entering sort of the, the college market, as it were, and they're really having that discussion of like, is school the right choice? Is a gap year the right choice? Um, mm -hmm. If you are going to go to school, you know, which school, what, you know, what can we afford and things like that? It's just, it's a, I think it's a deeper conversation than it used to be. Yeah. Gap year, I think when I was in high school, seemed like very off the beaten path. Only a few families really allowed it. For me, yep. it was never even, I didn't even think about it. But this has been so interesting, especially because, you know, you are a founder yourself of a, of a venture fund and mm -hmm. a female founder at that. Yep. Investing in other founders. So yep. it's particularly great to have you. Very meta. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's been great because like from an empathy standpoint, we really understand a lot of the pieces that entrepreneurs mm -hmm. go through. Um, also starting, you know, starting two businesses previous to this is certainly very helpful. But having gone out and having to raise money from um, high net worth in, uh, invest or sorry, high net worth individuals and family offices and other types of investors was a real education for us. And I think we bring mm -hmm. that education when we're working with, uh, people who are looking for funding from us. So we definitely, uh, we had to sort of play the same game. So before we get into kind of your earlier years, what were you doing before you started 1517 kind of like after college before that? Sure. There were there were a few things that I did. Um, I guess I'll work in chronological order. So I actually worked in a neuropsych unit uh, after mm -hmm. college. I actually thought I was going to become a neuropsychologist or researcher. And, and one thing that's interesting that I reflect on now is that 
the work of something and the study of something are very different. Uh, mm-hmm. And I sort of had this glorified view of what research might look like in my mind. Uh, and, and I worked in a clinic in the Beth Israel Hospital that was servicing uh, patients with Lou Gehrig's disease. And what I found through just working in the research was I'm not the type of person personally who can wait those long, long timelines of, of years to really figure out, hey, what's happening here? I, I am more of an instant maybe not instant gratification, but like more, more on that, like, hey, I need to see progress every day kind of person uh, to mm-hmm. feel really connected to the work I do. So I thought I was going to become a researcher or neuro- neuropsychologist. And, uh, and I liked the work that I was doing in that field, but also something about it didn't seem right to me. Uh, and I had noticed that, you know, one of the things I always loved doing was teaching. Uh, I was the type of kid who stayed in sc- in in during recess to help other kids with their homework. I, I wasn't even the best student, actually, but I just, I have a real helper mentality, which I actually think helps me a lot in my work now as a venture capitalist. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I started a tutoring company where I combined my love of teaching plus what I had learned in neuropsychology and how to think about memory and attention uh, with students. And it gave me a real edge when I was starting my business. Um, so I, I did that for about six years, I ran that business. I predominantly worked with homeschoolers, which really opened my eyes up to alternative education. Uh, I think I had previously thought that homeschoolers might be, you know, people who were um, dogmatic and just off the beaten path. Um, You know, people who didn't want to have a mailbox or be connected to the grid and things like that. And certainly I worked with some of those people. Um, But a lot of the people I worked with were just dissatisfied with uh, Mm -hmm. public and private education and wanted something different for their kids. Um, So that community just really opened me up in a big way. And through that, I ended up starting a charter school with a colleague of mine from the homeschooling world. Innovations Academy. It's in San Diego. Uh, We opened in 2008 with about 150 students. And actually, today, this, the school has been running since then. We have almost 400 students at the school. Uh, soon, we're going to have a new site in a school building built. So we've really become a sustainable entity in San Diego. And again, it's really all about relationship-based teaching. You know, the, the teachers being very um, ingrained in the students' lives. And there's a number of ways that we do that. And also project-based learning. So bringing that applicability into the classroom on things. Uh, From there, I ran the school there with my colleague for the first two years. That was an amazing experience. I didn't have any operational experience running a really big organization. I just run my my tutoring company. but I had also run clubs and things like that in high school, which is like just a, a microcosm of what it means to be a leader. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting when I look back and I think, oh, I was like founding things in middle school and high school, but didn't think of it as founding. Um, so I had some of the skills and certainly a lot of the drive, but I had none of the know-how. So those first two years of the school getting off the ground was a huge learning experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my colleague and I used to look at each other on some days and we would jokingly say to each other, like, who allowed that? Like, who allowed her and I to run this school? And because and, we just we said we had no business running our business, uh, which in some ways was very true then. But we certainly learned a lot. Uh, and then through a course of events, I ended up moving up to the Bay Area. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I was literally crying most days thinking that my skill sets oh. would be valued here because, you know, I know knew how to like 
code HTML, but you know, that that's that's not like hardcore coding skills nowadays. I wasn't really interested in doing that. Um, I wasn't sure what sort of organizations would really value what I could bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the Teal Fellowship launched. Uh, and I had thought to myself, oh, well, you know, they're, they're launching a program and I'm, a, you know, I'm like an ops person. So I thought, oh, they must have run a pilot. They must have all the staff they need. Like, why would they need somebody else? But actually, a friend of mine worked at the foundation and she called me up and she says, you've got to get your butt over here. Like, everything's moving so fast and, you know, they, they need support. And, uh, and that's how I started there. So then myself and my colleagues, there was a team of five of us who, who were on the founding team. Uh, got that off the ground. And, and very much like my school, it was very much like a startup where the first year we were doing everything the first time and learning and iterating. So actually when when James came into the program, I think that was the second year, we had our ducks in a row a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So it's always one of those satisfying things when you when you have something that's programmatic to be able to redo your program every time you run it, be like, ah, oh, this time it's better. Like we finally figured out these you know, certain key inputs we needed to do. Mm-hmm. But um, But yeah, I was there for five years. Um, you know, loved every minute of it. There was a lot of learning about, you know, how do you roll with the ups and downs of people who are founding things as a group. Uh, and then uh, Michael and I, and Michael was at the, on the founding team of the Teal Fellowship, we decided we wanted to take things to the next level. So we started 1517 to be able to work with more people and expand upon our work. So two things you just said really struck out to me. Um... In the context of this park, I, the context of this podcast, I think a lot are very interesting in general. But, but to kind of keep it with the focus, yeah. You know, what is that? The it sounds almost like you felt this imposter syndrome when you said, you know, who would give us the ability to run this school the first time? And do you think yep. that's just a typical thing that founders have in general? I know it's a very typical thing amongst women. I fall prey mm-hmm. to that all the time. Um, and how did you overcome that? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we we went through a program called Charter Launch that was put on by the California Charter School Association that kind of, it was almost like a boot camp or an accelerator program for charter schools starting. And mm-hmm. so in some ways, we were on the cusp of what would become like startup accelerators and things like that. The niche just happened to be building schools. And I remember we said to this woman who was running the program, we said, oh, well, you know, once we get our charter approved and and we have the you know, the curriculum set and things like that, we're going to hand our baby off to somebody else who's a a real principal, someone who knows how to do this. And she looked at us and she says, no one understands the vision like you two do. So you absolutely cannot hand it off to somebody else. And that was really eye-opening to us. So then we, you know, we we got on board with that and we thought, oh, okay, I guess we'll be operating this school. And, uh, And there was definitely a lot where I'm not sure that we felt like imposters so much as just sort of insecure of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we were, there were other charters that were opening that year with, with founders who had, um, you know, worked in schools for longer, who had been administrators before. So there were definitely hurdles as far as sort of feeling like we, um, we were capable, but we also knew, and I think this has been true for me in, in founding 1517 too, is one of my favorite things to say to people is if you don't ask, you don't get. And so I'm someone yeah. who really likes to uh, gravitate towards resources. And I know what I don't know. Uh, and I know when I need help. And I generally have some sense of who should I reach out to for that help. And so in starting the school, we would reach out to people. Uh, like there were other charter leaders, you know, who had ran schools for five or ten years who we'd reach out to and say, hey, here's the problems we're having right now. Like how do we solve this? 
Uh, and sometimes they'd have really specific answers for us. And sometimes they'd say, hey, like, this is just the nature of the beast. And sometimes that would make us feel really good because it was like, okay, this isn't just a Danielle and Christine. That was my co-founder's name. Uh, this isn't just a Danielle Christine problem of like being incompetent. This is just the life of a charter school. And these are the types of problems you like you come up against. Uh, we also got a lot of mentorship. We went through a program that mentored new charter leaders. Um, so yeah, we just, we always tried to shore up our resources, but it was something that we had to think about a lot in terms of like, how do we shore up what we don't know? Um, but also exude some level of confidence with staff and, and with parents. We were very transparent with people as well. We would always tell them like, Hey, this is the first year of the school. It's going to be up and down. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to do some things right. Like, and we can't predict what those things are right now, but hopefully by the end of the year, we can you know, refine and iterate and just keep making things better and better. Yeah. You know, your journey sounds so much to me. What I love to see from founders, I think I really, I know it's very popular and that's why Andreessen Horowitz started was that they felt that the people who founded the company should remain the CEO because no one understands the vision like the founders. Um, And that's something I agree with as well. Yeah. In most instances, I think there are rare exceptions, but uh, and the other thing you said before was that, you know, you never had any leadership experiences or you had leadership experiences when you were in middle school, but nothing of this kind. So I'm curious, though, you know, I have this thesis or hypothesis really about these early leadership experiences are important in the sense that, yep. yes, they might not be directly translatable skills, but right. they give you the propensity to kind of, you know, become a leader and not be afraid to do something. So I'd love to talk more about what you were like in middle school and what kind of attracted you to leadership and what those opportunities were. Yeah, I think one of the biggest catalysts may have been that I was an instrumentalist from fourth grade on. I played clarinet uh, and was highly proficient by the time I ended in high school, but there were a lot of leadership opportunities in that Um, Mm. things like becoming a section leader and having other people who would look up to you and say like, Hey, how does this rhythm go? Or, you know, does our tone sound right? And things like that gave a lot of opportunities sort of all the way from early uh, elementary school, all the way through high school to sort of lead and direct. And, you know, how do you give someone feedback when they don't sound that good, but also, you know, you don't want to send off one of your buddies crying, you know, saying like, wow, you sound like shit. Like, you know, you don't do that. So I, think there were, I think there were a lot of skills that came from my music background that I didn't even really realize I was acquiring. And also just mm-hmm. the, the skill of perseverance in that. I mean, there were plenty of times where I sounded terrible or, you know, a certain passage was really hard to get through. And it's like, just do it again, just do it again, just do it again, just do it again. And sort of getting that experience of seeing progress over time and like, you know, the first time you read a piece of music and you're sight reading and you don't even know how it's ever going to sound good to, to being in a recital and having people congratulate you on the great piece you did. It's like you, you just get to see like, oh, I put hard work in and here's what happens when I do hard work. So there was, there was a big music component. Um, I think in music, you know, you're working with teams in general, you're working with sections, you're working with a larger orchestra. Um, so there is like a, there's like an organizational dynamic in music that just naturally occurs. And our, you know, my, our conductors were never saying things like, Hey, if you go work at a company, it's like, like they weren't making that translation happen. It's only now that I'm an adult that I can look back and see like, Oh, that was really applicable. Um, or other things as well. Um, no, definitely. I mean, I think that's the point, right? It's not yeah. supposed to. The reason why it's so important that 
you know, I think that young people have these leadership experiences are for what you just said, you know, to take ownership. And when I had one delivering negative feedback, an extremely yeah. important skill or how to do that tactfully yeah. and still um, not hurt anyone's feelings when middle school is all about feelings. Um, and so when you're looking at these applicants for 1517 or when you were at Peter Thiel, what do you look for in their background that might give way to think that they might be a good leader, given that they're still very young? Yeah. So, I mean, the main thing that we look for is really a past history of execution. Uh, one thing that we were super impressed with when James had applied uh, was that, one, he applied multiple times. He didn't get it the first time he applied. And for us, seeing progress over time is a really big deal. Um, mm. Another sort of growing up activity that I think has really shaped a lot of how I think about things now is that I grew up in a lot of fixer-upper houses. Like my mom was a general contractor. And so one for many years, we lived in what was an old frat house. And you would, <laughs> we literally pulled the rug up on this house and the rug on top was dry, but the padding under the rug was soaked with beer from all the parties over time. <laughs> it's so gross. And I still remember ripping up the rug, ripping up the padding. Like we did this ourselves using a little screwdriver to get the staples out of the floor. And eventually we had this like really nice, beautiful wooden floor that we polished and things like that. And I think about startup founding in that same way of like, you have this idea, it's a fixer upper, like it's not there yet. There's a lot you have to do for it. And so when we're looking at founders, we look at a past history of execution. What are the other things that they have done? Um, it has been interesting to us to see that a number of the people we've worked with have been instrumentalists, have been team players on a sport, mm. um, have had those sort of early leadership experiences. In the fellowship, I don't remember the exact count, but in the first couple of years, we looked at who went to, who had some form of an alternative schooling, uh, whether it was Montessori, mm -hmm. um, homeschooling, other things. And it was a high number. I think at least 50%, if not more, had participated for some period of time, maybe even just a year, in some sort of alternative schooling that gave them more responsibility, that gave mm -hmm. them more empowerment to take on their learning. Um, and so, so yeah, like we look for those things too. Um, we look for people who are really passionate about what they're doing, not because they're passionate about becoming an entrepreneur, but because they're really passionate about solving a problem. So sometimes we'll ask people, how did you come across this idea? And they'll say things like, oh, well, when I was 10, I got interested in this and this and this, and that all led me to where I am today. So it's sort of like this sustained interest over time, even if what it looks like has changed. So those are those are a couple of the attributes that we look for. Now, did you or or any of these applicants really have to overcome failure? Because that's another thing that I see a lot with people who become founders is that they've gone yep. through this failure and just it makes you not scared because, you know, you'll survive. And what's what's the worst that can possibly happen? Yep, definitely. I mean, we have we have certainly seen a number of people sort of hit those failure points. And one of the learnings that I had in the fellowship was no matter how much I wanted to sort of soften the blow that someone might have and sort of like throw pillows under them as they're, you know, you know, falling, you know, through the proverbial sky was that you really get the real learning when you actually like face the consequence of, of the action, whatever that is. So sometimes I would say things like, you know, you've got to hit pavement to learn this. And of course, then I got um, my butt handed to me one day, I'd been saying this phrase, like you've got to hit pavement for a while. And then I was riding a bike to the office to the Teal Foundation one day and I got doored 
on the way oh into the God. office, and then I hit pavement, and that taught me to <laughs> never drive, to never <laughs> ride closely to parked cars again. I was like, God oh, damn it! Like, and maybe not to use that now, saying. Right. I know. I was like, oh man, now I really hit pavement. Um, so we've we've certainly seen people who have gone through those struggles. We try to make ourselves really accessible as far as hearing those struggles from people and knowing what's not working. Like um, we check in with our founders, you know, on sort of a high level review every other month. And of course, you know, we're available to talk to them anytime, but, but the door is always open for like, Hey, what's not working because that's where we can really help. Or, you know, if, if you're getting really scared and nervous about things, like we want to talk about that and be a support system there. It's a little hard sometimes to get answers that are straight from people. Like we used to ask people in the fellowship application, um, you know, tell us about a time you failed at something, but everyone kind of puts like the, oh, I, I, I don't know, like some sort of grandiose non-failure failure thing. Right. It's kind of hard to get at people. And so we should probably come up with a better question for that now. Honestly, um, in my interviews, the ones that really throw me are, okay, they ask you that and then they say to you, okay, now tell me another time because people usually only have oh. one answer prepared. That's and, awesome. then, and then you're kind of like Shit. that's good i'm but gonna it's, it's I'm, I'm gonna use that um i've had i've had people ask you three times because if they think i think they do it until they can see that you're really struggling to think of one on the spot um yeah. that's good i'm gonna borrow that <laughs> um so sadly we are getting towards the end i feel like i could talk to you all day but now we're gonna end with some fun questions so okay, cool. what is the best book you recommend to founders to read Oh gosh, the best book that I recommend to founders to read. I mean, there's a few things I really like. I think founding something really starts with you as a person. So I'm really big into personal development. I love, um, one example is The Power of Habit. Um, Mm -hmm. Benjamin Zander also has a wonderful book called um, The Art of Possibility. Um, possibility. Yeah, it's a really wonderful book. So yeah, I I think uh, founders sort of starting with themselves and, and learning about how they can be the best leader they can be is a great place to start. I love that. I think that's an amazing answer. Um, I also, I also recommend, I would recommend to people to keep a journal of some sorts and see uh, how you progress um, over time. And also it's just a great way to look back on what's going to be a very exciting time in your life. Yeah, absolutely. When we do reviews with founders every other month, we always ask them like, what are your top three professional and personal learnings? Uh, and we ask them, how are you taking care of yourself? Because these are all mm-hmm. things that like, it's all reflected in the company. Like if you're not taking care of yourself then there are areas in the company that aren't being taken care of either. So it's super important. Definitely. And then your employees will think it's okay to not take care of themselves. Either. Right. Yeah. Or think that you expect that. Exactly. Um, so what areas of tech get you excited right now? Gosh, let's see. You know, I'm really interested in sensor-based technologies right now. I oh, think uh, good answer. We're coming, we're coming into a time where, I like to think, I mean, I'm really interested in deep learning as well for this area, because I think like as humans, you know, there's that saying of, um, you know, like fish to water. I think data is like that for human beings. Like we're just surrounded Mm -hmm. by so much going on all the time. And I'm really curious what sort of data, especially what sort of counterintuitive data is going to become really interesting for our future. Yeah, that's I think that's an amazing answer. And then finally, if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? Oh, gosh. I mean, I guess one thing that comes to mind, and I don't have a person for this, but I have found that I've had some of the most fascinating conversations with people who aren't like the in the spotlight. Um, You know, you haven't heard their name before. 
but they've built amazing things. Like I, I got a chance to get to know Kay Koplovitz. So she founded USA Network. Um, and we had her speak at one of our teal summits that we had uh, in the past. And she just had a fascinating story. Um, you know, she, she was born in 1945, so she's very much, you know, a mentor and someone who led the path for women. Um, yeah. You know, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not, you know, people don't walk around the Bay Area being like, oh, yeah, have you talked to Kay? Did you see what Kay said about sentences? I like to laugh and say, hear people call people by their first names, like, oh, Elon, ooh, Peter, like, and I, don't, I find it, <laughs> I find it a, little, a little weird, and I don't know, it's, to me, it's a little strange to call people by their first names if you're not actually, like, super friendly with them, um, but, uh, but yeah, I think there's just a lot of people who are, who are overlooked, who are really, really interesting, and so I think seeking out those people uh, can be a great way to, like, get mentorship and support, because they're not the people who are hit up all the time, but still have mm-hmm. such a wealth of information. I mean, there are so many companies that touch our everyday life, but you don't know who started them. Right. So I think yeah. that's a great answer. I think uh, so many people have said to me, Jeff Bezos, and while of course he's a really interesting man, I think, yeah. you know, there are a lot of people that have created companies at scale that really touch your life that you would yeah. have no idea who they are. Yeah, no, absolutely. And if I had to pick someone from like the education world, I would totally want to sit down with Maria Montessori because if you mm. read her books, the reverence that she has for young people, I have found to be unparalleled. And I would love to sit down with her and be like, what, what was that, you know, was there a moment that struck you in really seeing that children are capable, uh, you know, and uh, enable of so much more than we give them credit for? Uh, and, and so I would love to sit down with her. And, uh, you know, she's she's long since dead and gone. Um, But that would be fascinating to me. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for being on my show. It was awesome to have you. Yeah, super fun. Let me know when you're in Chicago next time. Yeah, will do. All right. And that's it for this week's episode of 52 Founders. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and stay up to date with us on Twitter at 52founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode.